On R2C2, CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco guide listeners through everything going on in the MLB, NBA, and NFL. They also talk to friends, athletes, and celebrities about the world of sports and much more. Check out R2C2 with CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain... Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I am a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today is Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. So we have been informed that as long as the lockout is going on, uh, that our podcast is going to be going dark. So we wanted to take this opportunity before we sign off for the offseason to reset the table, catch up with some of the news since the last time we talked, there hasn't been a lot because, you know, there's the lockout and also look ahead to the uh, 2022 season. Uh, so to try to set you up so we're in a good good spot when uh, when we come back, uh, hopefully soon, but that's not really in our hands. So uh, so let's get going, Tony Clark and Rob Manfred, and, and get the ball rolling again. Um, so the first thing that, I mean, the biggest news that, that happened this week is the Hall of Fame era committees, uh, the Hall of Fame era committees have met. They have conferred. They have elected six new Hall of Famers. Uh, so Gil Hodges, Jim Cott, Minnie Minoso, Tony Oliva were elected by the Golden Days era committee. Uh, it left unsaid in the announcement is who decided to name it the Golden Days era committee. And the, uh, the people who decided to name it were the people who grew up watching baseball in 1950 to 1969. So for them, it is the Golden Days in 50 years when Bobby and I are in charge and we can rename the steroid era the new Golden Days, then that'll be the case. Yeah, I mean, one of the disappointing things about living in a country without any sort of social, you know, appreciable social safety net is people just don't retire. And uh, <laughs> I think if you grew up in the 50s watching baseball uh, and you view that as the golden days, like you ought to be on a golf course or a beach somewhere like you've done your shift. You know, let let the next generation take over. Was that your subtle way of telling me and Cram that you're actually going to be the one in charge of naming this in 50 years and we don't get to? No, it's my subtle way of telling you and Cram to put me on an ice floe when it's time because I don't want You wanna... don't have to tell us twice, bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, they're joined by Bud Fowler and Buck O'Neill of the early baseball era committee. Uh, so this is a, a big class. It's, it will likely dwarf whatever the BBWA uh, 
um, ends up putting in. Uh, so, Zach, do you have any initial thoughts on on any of these candidates or the group as a, a collective? I have a few. I think, first off, it will not only dwarf the number of uh, BBWA selections this year, I think it will uh, maximize it by infinity because I don't think anybody is going to make it off the BBWA ballot this year. Obviously, that is uh, much more contentious with some of the folks involved with Schilling and Bonds and Clemens in their final years. And I don't think anyone's getting in off that ballot this year. So to have a, a big class, and especially with the ERA committee or Veterans Committee ballots, to have living players able to be inducted is, I think, uh, a really important touch. The Hall of Fame I wrote about this a few years ago, is essentially two different groups. There's the BBWA selections, which make up about half of the players in the hall. And then there are era committee selections or special selections from the various committees convened over the years. And that is a much wider group for uh, the American League and National League players in particular. It is typically a lesser group of players, but at least if they're going to get into the hall, to have it when they're still living is, I think, a really important goal to so to see that for a couple players this year is important also just given the players involved like Minoso was probably the best player outside the Hall of Fame for a while up until this point and like uh, Buck O'Neill I think you said you thought O'Neill had been in the Hall for a long time already I was a star- like I learned this like I'm not just doing this for a bit I learned like this winter that he wasn't in the Hall of yeah. Fame already I just assumed that like this this is a, a player with maybe the highest universal approval rate approval wow approval rating in baseball history and he wasn't in the hall of fame until now despite a worthy playing career in the negro leagues and like an entire like 50 year post playing career as a coach and like an informal ambassador to the game for the game and you know there was like you legitimately could not find anybody with a negative word to say about Buck O'Neill so I'm you know, I love that he's in there. I mean, we could talk about, I, I think the point that you're ramping up to is, is what I want to talk about with a couple of these players. So, well, yeah, my point is, I think of the players who got in, like Jim Cott and uh, Gil Hodges were more borderline candidates who eventually got in because that's what the veterans committees tend to do. On the other hand, like Fowler or O'Neill or Minoso are players who have been underrepresented from the Negro Leagues for a long time. There was a big batch of Negro League players inducted in 2006, and we basically haven't seen any since then. So especially now that MLB is recognizing the Negro Leagues as a major league, I hope we get to see a lot more of these Negro League legends make it into the Hall of Fame where they've belonged for a lot longer than just since the Negro Leagues officially got the stamp from MLB last year. Yeah, and you know, I'm one of those people who's sort of ambivalent about uh, the Negro Leagues getting that that stamp of of approval from MLB because it's it strikes me like it, it, on the one side like obviously they were major league baseball in any meaningful sense of the term in any meaningful like non trademark sense of the term uh, and but at the same time it feels sort of patronizing for the white baseball establishment to like legitimize them now after saying like we we don't need to to go into that but I'm. I'm uh, really happy that Buck O'Neill's in. There's one, I, what I wanted from this ballot, and I'm I'm a big Hall guy, and I think a, a couple of the players who got in are, you said borderline, I think even that's a little, uh, a little generous, but. 
Well, and, and that tends to be the case with these veterans right. committee ballots, like even beyond the Frankie Frisch inducting all of his friends of it all sent, uh, uh, decades ago, like it's good to have the backstop when someone like, uh, you know, Archie Vaughn doesn't make it from the writers when he very much deserved to be in. But for the most part, this is a group that does not measure up to the standard of the BBWA in general. Of, of course, it's good that we have the era committees as the backstop and for uh, Negro Leagues players who were not, you know, even considered by the BBWA. But for the most part, it is Gil Hodges and Jim Cott and Tony Oliva who get in from these era committees. And it, it just leads to kind of two different halls of fame when you look at how players get voted in. Yeah, you know, maybe 40 years from now, I'll serve on one of these committees and I can finally get Jimmy Rollins and Cole Hamels in. Um, so the one name that we haven't mentioned, what I wanted from this was, I think, you know, Minosa is a very popular uh, he's going to be a very popular addition. Buck O'Neill, we've already talked about at some length, but Dick Allen once again falling one vote short. And you mentioned uh, guys getting into the Hall of Fame just after they died when they weren't around to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I have a hard time like begrudging you know, somebody like Cott, who I think is a little short on the merits. Like Obviously, this is going to mean the world to him. And so it just feels a little uncharitable to, to complain about it. But Dick Allen is somebody who was really badly mistreated in the press when he was a player underrated um, in terms of on-field production. And that continued well into his retirement. I think like that it's very, even to this day, sort of underrated what a spectacular player he was. And when you complain, you know, when you think about guys who have sort of borderline hall of fame cases, what they miss in a lot of, of, of uh, instances is that soup, you know, any kind of superstar output that like, you know, they get to 60 career wins above replacement or two or 2,500 hits or something just by steadily producing. And Dick Allen was, you know, he was one of the best hitters in the game in, in his day and to miss by one vote again. And just after he died last year, um, it's, you know, his, his family's talked in the, in the press a little bit about how disappointing it is. And I just, you know, it's uh, it's kind of upsetting to see him get get passed over and continue to to suffer the disrespect that that dogged him uh, throughout his playing career, even well into his retirement. Now, you know, after his life, you know, after after he died, it's uh, yeah, I, I want it better for him. I'm not sure if it applied in Allen's case, but I do think the way that era committees are set up is really messed up in terms of the math because there is a maximum of four players per ballot and there are 16 ballots for each era committee. So that only leads to 64 votes. You need 12 votes to get in. So if there are five worthy players on the ballot, as uh, came very close to happening with the Golden Days ballot with Minoso, Hodges, Cott, Oliva, and Allen, like there needs to be some some backroom uh, bargaining to be able to give all of those players enough votes so like maury wills was on the ballot or roger maris and if you think roger maris deserves to be in the hall that might take away a vote from one of these players that everyone else think is deserving would dick allen have gotten that 12th vote if there weren't a ballot limit i don't know but i think this is a case similar to how like the bbwa wanted to expand from their 12 person limit and the hall of fame said no. And I don't understand why 
if there are that many worthy players on the ballot, they would say you can't vote for five players on on the Golden Days ballot. It doesn't make sense. It didn't in this case with Allen. It didn't in the past with Marvin Miller when he came close a few times. It won't in the future when you know the '80s and '90s are underrepresented in the Hall based on like the the historical proportion of players who are Hall of Famers. And once those groups start coming up in, in these era committees, like there are a lot of players to sift through and they're not going to have a chance to get in if there are six worthy ones on the ballot and they all cannibalize each other's votes. Yeah, it's it's officious is the word for it from the Hall of Fame. And, you know, I'm and I'm not just saying this because I'm a BBWA person. Now I'm part of the hated establishment. I'm not a, a Hall of Fame voter and won't be for a few years. But a lot of the during the the height of the steroid era hysteria, um, the writers took a lot of deserved crap for the way that they voted. Like the ten person ballot should never never was a problem. It never should have been a problem until we got that backlog because we weren't clearing guys off the off the ballot. I mean, yeah, because because if you wanted to vote for a steroid uh, for the steroid guys, like that was seven of your votes right there. Right, because just on merit, guys like Clemens and and Bonds and um, even players who got looped in and and hung around despite a lack of of credible uh um credible credible evidence against them jeff bagwell's the the big example of that they were hanging around on ballots way longer than they should have and so the bbwa wanted bigger ballots they voted overwhelmingly to make every ballot public and the hall of fame keeps shooting them down and you know it's been a while since i've been to the hall of fame but it's like going there, the actual museum, the artifacts you see, like the the story, the it tells the full story of baseball. Um, it's it was like a religious experience. It's one of the coolest places that that I've ever gone. Um, and it's tough to keep the cognitive dissonance in my mind of like acknowledging just this humongously important center for historical preservation and also this board of of old cranks who are slowly deriding their own legitimacy and so you know it's i'm not one of those people who says oh we need to throw away all institutions you know i think it's it's worth fighting for the the legitimacy of of institutions with with the kind of legacy like the hall of fame um as long as that's possible but it's you know it's disappointing so i don't know i'm again ambivalent about this this hall of fame class i I think, you know, the Hall of Fame diminishes itself by not including Dick Allen. But at the same time, I'm really glad to see Minoso in there. I'm really glad to see Buck O'Neill finally, mystifyingly, uh, get his due. Uh, I do wish that that it had happened. Like, could you imagine a Buck O'Neill Hall of Fame acceptance speech? It should have happened. It's, it's, I don't understand. What, yeah. Why would, why would we rob ourselves of that? societally it's just really disappointing so uh okay uh i don't know if you got anything else about the the hall of fame uh i'm just uh really looking forward to the next six weeks of discourse while there's no other baseball news to just hear every single voter like this is a thing i think you made this point earlier we're scrutinizing every bbwa ballot because we get like the ballot tracker and we see the ballot and the writer might write a column but like the reason that we have hundreds of voters and the 75% threshold is because it's a large and varied electorate and they have lots of disparate opinions and they all kind of 
mash together and create a final vote tally. And I think we do ourselves and the discourse a disservice by focusing on every single individual ballot. When, when you get a group of 450 people together, there are going to be some quirky opinions in there. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, it's useful. It's good for content. If I had a, a ballot, I would want to explain my reasoning because that's that's part of the fun of of voting for something like this is to not not even the fun, but like part of the process. It's it's good to be able to explain your process, whatever it is. But I think, like you said, with hundreds and hundreds of voters, there are individual voters. There are going to be lots of indiv- individual voters with lots of weird idiosyncrasies. And not all of them are going to have coherent choices, but on the aggregate, they shake out into something that I think we can all agree on, um, or that you know broadly af- uh, reflects the the cultural landscape. And it's frustrating to you know to try to parse that on an individual level, but that's democracy. So you know, I don't have a better solution. Just looking at like the way other halls of fame do it, like the NFL uh, and the NHL or hockey, I should say, are just even more cronyistic and, and Byzantine than, than baseball. Uh, so this is, uh, I don't have a better idea, I guess is the, is the, the, the point of that. As much as we complain about that, I, I don't have a better way to do it. Scott Rowland is climbing up the, the percentage ranks. It's good for you as a late nineties Phillies fan. Yeah. I mean, third basemen tend to be generally underrepresented and, and Phillies third basemen tend to be exceptional. So, uh, you know, Mike Schmidt, obviously <laughs> Scott Rowland, Dick Allen, uh, we're paving the way to when I'm on the, the, uh, the golden back knee committee, we're gonna, we're gonna put Placido Polanco in the hall of fame, Alec Bohm in 2046, Dave Hollins, the, the last man to play for both South Carolina and the Phillies exceptional on base guy. Of course, of course, the la- the trivia of the last man to play for South Carolina and the Phillies came up. This podcast could only ever be itself. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to get all the bits in before we go off the air. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Let's skip ahead to what I've called the timeline of the far future. So, you know, we've looked back on the 2021 season. The the barbecue guides have looked back on the 2021 season as well. We want to look ahead and see what housekeeping is left to be done when we do come back from the lockout. You know, sort of take stock of the free agent class, what remains to be uh, sorted out, some of the impacts that the lockout might have, and then look, you know, what do we want to see the 2020, what do we want to see from the 2022 season? Um, 
So I guess, I don't know, do you want to start with the the Rule 5 draft? Because that was the the first big casualty of the lockout. We had the some fun game, fun names in the minor league portion, but obviously the major league portion is uh, postponed indefinitely. Yeah, so we had the minor league Rule 5 draft, and I consider myself uh, a baseball nerd. I follow these things very closely. I do not typically follow the minor league Rule 5 draft, but this year there wasn't the major league portion. It was the only... Th- only game in town. So I did pay attention to some of these names. We got uh, John Duplantier, uh, formerly of Arizona. We got Carson Fulmer. And uh, did you know which which team Carson Fulmer had been on in 2021? Because I did not. He was uh, on the Reds, wasn't he? He was, because yeah. he was drafted uh, by the White Sox as the eighth overall pick in 2015. And then starting in July 2020, he was... Uh, selected off waivers by the Tigers from the Chicago. And then a month later, he was selected off waivers by the Pirates. And then about two weeks after that, he was selected off waivers by the Orioles. Two weeks after that, selected off waivers by the Pirates again. And uh, last March, selected off waivers by the Reds. Now he's been picked by the Dodgers. So who knows if they can uh, rediscover the magic that was once in his right arm. But Mike, uh, seeing Carson Fulmer's name on this list has inspired a little game I want to play with you, okay? I was going to list all the people he played with at Vanderbilt on well, those back-to-back College World Series teams. Is this is this where the, the game's going? No, the game is going. So Fulmer, as I mentioned, was the number eight pick in the 2015 yeah. draft. Uh, the top nine pitchers in that draft, there were nine players picked. Uh, sorry, I should say there were nine pitchers picked in the top 22 picks of that draft. And they have combined for a grand total of 0.7 Major League War. So that's nine pitchers. In the 2015 draft, the top nine have combined for less than one Major League War. Mike, how many of the nine pitchers can you, college baseball and draft enthusiast, name? Uh, Okay, so Fulmer's one of them. Um, Bueller went 24 that year. Bueller was the 10th pitcher picked in the draft, so that is why I cut it off at top nine. Walker Bueller, of course, has more than .7 War in his career. Uh, That was the Dylan Tate year at UCSB. Dylan Tate was number four to the Texas Rangers. He is at 1.2 war. So, uh, you know, doing all he can to boost up the top of this pitching draft. Okay. I actually saw a lot of these pitchers this year, including Fulmer. Um, and I was really, I think John Harris from Missouri state was outside the top 20. He was number 29. So he does not count. I saw him shove against Dallas Baptist. I saw Tyler J from Illinois. Obviously, um, I was stumping for him for the, the golden spikes pretty much all year. Um, Tyler J, the number six pick has not yet pitched in the major leagues. He, so he you made are one now start th- that season. Uh, and um, it was in the, the NCAA tournament against Carson Fulmer's Vanderbilt. He took the loss. Dansby Swanson homered off him. Uh, Vanderbilt's pitching staff was so good. They didn't use Walker Bueller in that series. Wow. Uh, let's well, see. You, you got three out of nine so far. You have the top I'm sort three. of stalling here. Hoffman was 2014. Freeland was 2014. Nola was 2014. It looks like of the remaining players, there were four high schoolers and two college players. I'm probably not going to get the high schoolers. Was that? No, that wasn't the Bickford year either. It was the Um, Bickford year. Oh, was it the Bickford year? Phil Bickford, number 18 to the Giants out of the College of Southern Nevada. Oh, okay. Yeah, he went the two years before. <clears throat> and then went to Fullerton, transferred around, and is now in the in the Dodgers system. Um, Tom Eshelman was the second rounder that year. Funkhauser was in the sandwich round. 
I think I'm out. Can you give me the schools for the two college pitchers? Well, so you got one, which was Bickford. The other one was UCLA. Good pitcher when he's healthy, but oft injured oh, over his career. Yep, James Caprelli. Yeah. And so the ones you missed were Colby Allard, number 14 to Atlanta. Of course, yeah. James Caprelli and number 16 to the Yankees, then traded to Oakland in the Sunny Gray deal. Number 17, Brady Aiken, because this is when oh, right. he wasn't signed after being picked first overall and dropped because of his medicals. Number 21, Ash Russell to Kansas City. He has also not pitched in the majors yet, like Aiken and Tyler J. And number 22, Bo Burrows to the Tigers. So I say all this, one, to just put you on the trivia spot, but two, because Walker Bueller was the 10th player, uh, the 10th pitcher picked in that draft, and Mike Soroka was the 12th pitcher picked in that draft. So the draft continues to be a crapshoot. Fulmer we knew was a risky pick going in because the the windup was so weird and it wasn't uh, not an ideal body for a starting pitcher. But like, I'm shocked that Tyler J didn't put it all together. He was just so polished. Um, I thought at least he had big league reliever in him, and it just never happened for him. Uh, the second best left-handed pitcher to play a position other than quarterback in high school for a weird reason after Clayton Kershaw. Um, he said he, he told me he played wide receiver in high school because uh, he idolized Devin Hester growing up outside of Chicago and really wanted to return punts, and they wouldn't let him do that if he was playing quarterback. A lot of good hitters in that draft. Swanson, oh, Bregman, Swanson, Kyle Tucker. Yeah, Bregman, Brendan Rodgers. Um, Trent was, Grisham, my favorite. Cabrian Hayes in uh, in the sandwich round. So anyway, we can move on to Kyle talk Tucker, about... Kyle Tucker, number five, right? Yeah. We can move on to talk about Okay, I can Austin talk about Riley. this draft class for, for forever. Um, so one other effect of the lockout is some of the top Japanese pitchers uh, are staying in Japan. We've seen some of that. Uh, this is an interesting thing that to monitor every offseason is the transfer of of uh, talent from the American system to, to the major leagues in Asia, the KBO and, and MPB. And uh, there's one pitcher, Tomoyuki Sugano, who uh, is one of the best pitchers in Japan who's staying there because of the uncertainty of uh, of Major League Baseball with the lockout. Masahiro Tanaka is also staying over there. And it's, you know, we're seeing the the impact of, of this work stoppage with, uh, you know, we're seeing some borderline Major League. You know, Mike Talkman is going, I believe, to, to KBO. That came out yesterday. Um, so we're uh, already seeing a little bit of talent train because of the the uncertainty of the over the 2022 season. And I wonder if we'll see more fringe players on the major league side end up signing in Japan or South Korea. We saw this in the NBA lockout a decade ago, for instance, a bunch of players, a couple all-stars, but mostly like rookies and kind of over-the-hill veterans ended up signing overseas as well because they didn't know if they were going to be able to get a paycheck in the regular NBA season. So I could see like the kind of player who eventually has to maybe settle for a minor league deal with a major league option in February could just want the certainty of signing overseas if it presents itself. So we could see a bit of a talent drain that way too. But of course, it depends on timing and what the union is telling its players about when they can maybe expect a deal because it's all like individual choices about what they value most about playing here overseas and the certainty or the higher paycheck, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, this is something that happens every time the NHL locks out, too. It's everybody goes and plays in Europe. And on one like on one level, that's kind of fun to watch like different players in different combinations. You see like, you know, guys who are friends on different teams make sure to sign in the for the same team in Russia or Switzerland or whatever. I think there will probably be a little bit less of that in baseball. One, because 
I think the expectation is still this gets done without losing a bunch of the season. Uh, two, baseball is different from basketball or hockey in that workload, particularly for pitchers, is cumulative in a way that it isn't in other sports. So you have to, and this is why the international game doesn't really take off the way it does in other sports, is you have to be careful about uh, pitcher usage. So, and the other thing is there's still a pandemic going on. And, and you know, even players who, uh, let's say are maybe less concerned than, than they should be about, uh, about the effects of COVID, uh, they still have to deal with diplomatic restrictions and, and, uh, you know, travel protocols that are going to be more, uh, more onerous than they would be under normal circumstances. So like, if you've got a wife and kids, like deciding to go play in Korea is a big commitment. If they can't get over there, uh, and, and come back as frequently as they might under normal circumstances. But I think, you know, Mike Talkman is, I think, the exact, the exact ar- archetype of player that you would expect to go over there. Somebody who, you know, probably finds a spot on a big league bench, but might bounce around a little bit, might struggle to get playing time. It makes perfect sense for him, like, get a million dollars guaranteed, go over there, make some money, hopefully hit some dingers, build up your value, come back when when things have cooled off over here. And, you know, I I wish that there was more of that, more exchange between, um, between the different baseball cultures, the way that you see in soccer or basketball or hockey that, you know, I think one, like, to increase the profile of, of the major leagues in Asia with American fans, if it was, you know, if there was more free exchange of players and, and coaches and ideas than than you see here. Yeah, and we have seen that, I think, more frequently just with players in the last few years, Miles Michaelis, uh, etc., of players going to Japan and then coming back after a few years because they've discovered a new pitch or just grown more confident or something. Oh, Nick Martinez so, is apparently worth four years and $20 million now, which I is not believe it was something that I ever thought we'd say about him when he was with the Rangers. But Yeah, so, you know, who knows how many players this will eventually end up applying to, but I think the answer is probably a bit more than we would have in a normal season. So let's go to some guys who, I don't know if Clayton Kershaw does go to Japan, like that would be pretty wild. Uh, but he's one of several top free agents who missed the, the big wave, uh, was more willing to be patient and didn't sign before the lockout. So I don't know. I've got five names here. Kershaw, Carlos Correa, Freddie Freeman, Chris Bryant, Trevor Story, um, and we can talk about whoever else you want to talk about. But so there's an established bit uh, that we've got, or at least I have. Chris Bryant needs to go to the Mariners. I'm supplementing that, particularly given how much the Rangers spent on um, on Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, Clayton Kershaw. Bring Kershaw home. Bring him home to Texas. Kershaw to the Texas Rangers. Are you not sold on a rotation fronted by John Gray and Dane Dunning and then three guys behind them? I like Dane Dunning. I like Dane Dunning a lot. Uh, But, you know, they need a number three. You know who else needs a number three is the Dodgers. Yeah. Because the Dodgers right now behind Bueller and Arias with Kershaw unsigned with Scherzer gone, they have Gonsolin, Haney, and David Price as their three through five starters right now. And that is not what we expect from the Dodgers, who normally have too many good starters to fit in one rotation. So I actually think they need Kershaw back more than ever, which leads to a broader question as we talk about these guys. Have any of the signings so far 
changed where you want a big free agent to end up. We did the podcast at the start of free agency where we went through like the top 20 players and where we wanted them. Has any of that changed because of signings thus far, either because of holes left behind on a team like Kershaw with the Dodgers or opened up somewhere else? Well, Kershaw to the Rangers feels like it's something that could fit with a coherent plan the Rangers have, which, first of all, it seems like the Rangers have at least a somewhat coherent plan, which was not the case a couple weeks ago. Um, but I, th- I think the big thing is, you know, we've seen some Freddie Freeman to Toronto rumors. Uh, I thought Simeon was was going back there. I didn't expect him to, to end up in Texas. Uh, and that team is so close. It's so close to breaking through. And I don't want to see them take a big step back. You know, I think Ray and Kevin Gossman is sort of a, that's about a wash, I think. Uh, it's not a huge hit if it is a hit at all. But they really need to replace Simeon's bat in the lineup. And, you know, whether that's Freeman, whether that's Story, I think they they need to, there's still another move away. And so, you know, I don't know that it needs to be one person in particular, but uh, I want to see Toronto take another bite out of this market. Yeah, Jeff Passan reporting that they were in on Corey Seager until the Rangers upped their bid to $32.5 million a year makes me think they have more room if you look at their payroll and what they were running in like the the contention years half a decade ago. I would love to see them go after one of the big remaining bats, whether it's Bryant or Story. They probably, if they weren't willing to go that high for Seager, probably wouldn't want to enter uh, Correa's stratosphere. But I think it reinforces my desire that they get one really good bat from among this class just because like you say they're so close and when that lineup is rolling dating back to the Bautista Donaldson years it's the most fun lineup to watch in baseball I wouldn't be that put I'd go higher for Correa than Seager I would be too just if they were I would have expected to say a couple years ago but I like Correa's defense has improved so much and I think he was so good last year. I, I think he's a little bit safer. I'd be willing to pay another an extra couple million a year. Like maybe they wouldn't go to thirty two and a half for for Seager. I'd go to ten three fifty for Correa though, without without thinking about it. I would be too, but that's why I have changed my answer. I think I said I wanted Correa to go to the Tigers. Obviously, they signed Baez instead. So mm-hmm. I am changing where I want Correa to go to to either the Yankees or Dodgers. Uh, Partially because I think both of those teams could use a shortstop. My, uh, I was talking with my That's brother. That's not the other why day. you want it. That's not why you want this to happen. Let me clarify. I was talking to my brother the other day, and I think based on all the reporting that the Yankees have been surrounded by, that th- they seem really willing to go after like Andrelton Simmons for a year or trade for Isaiah Kiner Falefa, who is now maybe expendable in Texas, and have a stopgap before their top prospects come up. I think this would be a mistake because the Yankees are close to contending now. And when you have a Carlos Correa there and you're the Yankees, you just sign him and worry about the money later, but, or, or don't worry about the money because you're the Yankees. But when I, my brother asked me like, who else would even be in on Correa at this point with the Tigers signing someone, I was like, you know, he kind of fits with the Dodgers. They wanted Seager back, but didn't get him the, the same level of like fan angst that would join Correa if he joined the Yankees would certainly apply with the Dodgers as well. And right now they have Trey Turner at shortstop for just the next year. He's a free agent after 2022 and sure Gavin Lux can maybe play second base, but he has not proved himself to be an everyday player yet. Max Muncy apparently tore his UCL. So it's unclear when he's going to come back, sign Correa to, you know, help 
hold down that offense with bets and Justin Turner's getting older. I think the Dodgers need to make some real upgrades here. And why not go after Correa? Like the Yankees, you're the Dodgers. You're not going to worry about the money. And he is perfect for the middle of that lineup and, and spot on the diamond. I don't know if they're going to, but ever since I began conceptualizing of this idea, it has grown in my mind. I think they need to do something. Um, so right after they got eliminated, I wrote something that um, basically saying this could be the end of the Dodgers as we conceive of them now. It's like this team that wins 105 games a year. Uh, and Dodgers Twitter is mad about a lot of stuff all the time, but they got mad at me specifically for for writing this. You know, and they were saying, you know, the, the major point is what are the Dodgers not going to be good? Like they could afford to lose a lot of these players and and still be good. And that's true. And I think the going there in the West, like trying to to go to 90, 91 wins in the West is a little bit dangerous because you expect the Padres to be good next year. You probably expect the Giants to be good this year. Um, but the Rockies and and Diamondbacks are just at sea. Like, uh, and particularly if the playoffs expand, then they're probably not gonna fall all the way out of the playoffs. But they've lost a lot this year or this offseason. Like they've they've lost Scherzer, um, they've lost Seeger, Muncie's hurt. Kershaw is unsigned. Kenley Jansen's unsigned. That's a lot of holes. That's a lot of production that they need to make up. And it's, you know, it, it goes from a, this team is nailed on to make the playoffs. This is absolutely the best team in the National League, which is how we've talked about them since, what, 2015, 2016? And there's a big difference between that and this is probably a playoff team. And I think the Dodgers are, are in danger of becoming probably or even very likely a playoff team which is a you know it's a huge step back for for a team that that's achieved so much that we have such high expectations for yeah i think the term that comes to mind is margin of error the dodgers yes. right now still have the number one projected uh war total for next season according to fan graphs and the yankees are number two but when i look at these rosters i don't know if i trust the math on that because the holes are just so glaring with the Yankees at shortstop with the Dodgers. It's the rotation. And then like another bat for the lineup, you know, if Cody Bellinger returns to four, maybe he is that bad, but he was the yeah. worst hitter in baseball last year other than the Jackie Bradley jr. So I think both of these teams, sure. They're probably playoff caliber anyway, but when you have obvious holes and there are the obvious candidates to replace them still available for just money, I think that's when you leverage your ability to spend that money like Steve Cohen did in going after Max Scherzer. Like the Yankees and Dodgers can do that as well. And I think with Correa and Story, they have the two best options to do that. Or like, I mean, if the Dodgers stole Freddie Freeman or something, that would be pretty funny. But uh, I I still think Freddie Freeman has to return to Atlanta. There's no way they can let him leave. I'm going to yell about this until he ends up signing somewhere else because it makes no sense. Yeah, I'm starting to, to consider... The possibility that he might, but it's definitely not a... I certainly would have expected him to have signed by now. It makes me more, ner more nervous that he hasn't. I don't think they need to go get like the Correa or Story or Freeman. I just think they need to get some solid guys to, you know, fill out around, you know, like Bueller and Arias is still a really good top two of the rotation. Um, you know, Trey Turner's in my, in my mind, a franchise shortstop, you know, they've still got Mookie Betts. They've still got Will Smith. Like they've got stars on this team already. They just need to, to have depth. And I think, you know, bringing Justin Turner back, bringing uh, Chris Taylor back is going to do a lot to, 
to shore up some of the holes. Like is as pessimistic as I am about their offseason now, it could have been a lot worse. But like, you know, I don't know if the the fit off the top of my head is great for somebody like Nick Cassianos or, or uh Kyle Schwarber, but like that's the I think that they could do a lot even by pursuing that level of free agent. So, you know, I expect them to do something once once the the floodgates open back up and and teams are allowed to sign players, but it's uh it's okay to be concerned that they haven't, even if there are good reasons and even if it's not too late. It's just, you know, it's something to to monitor uh with concern. And that's where I am with the Dodgers right now. So I know you said that uh Chris Bryant to the Mariners has only been reaffirmed in your mind, which makes sense. They signed Robbie Ray, but they still need a bat. Can I tell you the uh, possibility that I floated on that pod a couple weeks ago and now has been reaffirmed further, and that is Carlos Rodon to the Angels, which I know scares you. Yeah. But just... they they signed Noah Syndergaard, which I was like, okay, that makes sense. I would have probably gone for more than a year if you're going to give up a draft pick for him, but sure. And then they signed Michael Lorenzen and said that they're going to put him in the rotation. And that scared me because they haven't done anything else. And uh, surprise, the Angels need more pitching. So I think they should go after Carlos Rodon, especially because, as I mentioned last time, if they're going to use more of a six-man rotation with Otani, I think that makes sense with someone like Rodon, who you don't want to throw 200 innings a year, but would really love to have him for 165. So uh, give Rodon, uh, what, three years, four years at this point, if you're the Angels, because you have some really good players and you still need the starting pitching to get them over the top. Or give him one or two in a high AAV. I think that works for for him as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just mostly scared for the player in that uh, in that scenario. I, I definitely agree with you that it's a good fit for the team. Um, Other so. than Kershaw, he's the best pitcher left, right? Because everyone else, even from that middle tier, Stroman and Ryan Gaussman, have already signed. Mm-hmm. Erod, yeah. Man, this it all happened so fast. That's like, you know, we I expected to to be able to talk about this all winter. And uh free agency's like two thirds over now. Wild. Well, I think there are more batters left. Like if you look at the MLB trade rumors, top fifty entering the season, Carlos Cray was number one, Freddie Freeman was number three, Chris Bryant was number four, and they're all still available. So they're definitely impact bats, but if you look at the top pitchers, it's not really there. There was even a, a run on relievers, not necessarily for like Jansen, but Rysel Iglesias is gone. Corey Kniebel yeah. is gone. So there are not as many top of the market players available as I expected, certainly. Yeah, the Iglesias signing went under the radar too. Uh, so yeah, maybe we need a, another couple months off just to catch up on on uh, who's playing where now. Uh, so one other thing that, that we expect to see out of lockout is at least a few rule changes. Um, there was something, I think it was Evan Drellick at the, at the Athletic wrote about why the league is not putting things like a pitch clock or or other tweaks to the rules on the, the table under collective bargaining. Um, so maybe some of these might, might uh, not take place until 2023 when the commissioner has the power to implement things unilaterally. Uh, but the universal DH seems to be coming. The uh, expanded playoffs in some form, whether that's 12 teams or 14, and some kind of realignment perhaps seems to be coming. Uh, is there anything else that that's potentially on the table that, that you want to see? What I will say is, I think listeners know how I feel about expanded playoffs. 
uh, that I am anti-expanded playoffs because of how I feel it will affect both the regular season and spending at large as owners and front offices face different pressures to get into the postseason. But I kind of like the idea of what the player said, which is, okay, if we expand the playoffs, maybe we should go to two divisions. That kind of appeals to me if there's like a 12-team postseason where the two division winners in each league get a bye, and then there are four wild cards that play each other for the right to face those division winners. I could see that as a, a reasonable middle ground where winning your division is still really important. I love the, the idea of having two bigger divisions as opposed to three smaller divisions because I think it then puts pressure on like you can't hope to win 88 games and win the AL Central because none of the other teams are trying. So if we have to get expanded playoffs, I think that's the best proposal I've seen so far. I wouldn't mind bigger divisions. Like the travel burden seems to be the argument for for smaller divisions and you know with modern like sleep recovery and the the accommodations that players are in now that you know there's just not much of a travel burden or much not much of an additional travel burden at, for teams in the east and then out west it levels a playing field for teams like you know to a certain extent the twins but like mostly the the rockies the mariners the diamondbacks that are just constantly you know for every for every uh, road game they have to travel a thousand miles and so uh maybe it'll level the playoff field for some of those teams out west um yeah i like i like bigger divisions and it also like it lessens the you know we saw we how, how much were we complaining about this last year with the the al east had four teams that were better than any team in the nl east and uh it, it would by by having larger divisions, it would reduce a little bit of the randomness that the schedule shakes out. So yeah, I'd be all for going back to to two divisions to lead. The NHL did that a couple years ago. Um, that seems to be going okay. So and the NHL expanded to thirty two teams, right? Yeah, well, they are now. They they went back to four uh, four divisions when was it the same year they went from thirty to thirty one. It was within a year either way, if not if not for that. But but I think baseball will eventually expand to 32 as well. I think they should. I think that could be a, a way to combat some of the problems we've seen where if you have to add like two full new pitching staffs, then that could change the replacement level such that it's no longer as advantageous to shuffle the three back-end guys in your bullpen up and down, up and down, up and down through the minors. So I think it's expanding to 32 makes sense given the talent pool available anyway. So I would if we eventually get to that point, much, much rather see an NHL style four divisions with eight teams each rather than an NFL style eight divisions with four teams each because I think there, the schedule imbalances prove really problematic competitively. massive, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't mind going to, to 32. Um, Probably would... won't happen this winter, but uh, in terms of broader goals, I think moving to four divisions could help get to that you know, nice endpoint. Well, we got to wait for, for markets to emerge. So like the A's can't threaten to move to Vegas or the, <laughs> the Rays can't, can't threaten to move back or move to Montreal. Like this is the, the purpose of, of expansion is to have something to, to threaten cities to get them to pay for ballparks. Um, so, yeah, but I think, yeah, I think it's only a matter of time before we see a team in, uh, in Vegas, what that would look like environmentally is fascinating to me because Vegas is relatively not only far hotter than, 
I don't actually don't know if it's hotter than, than hotter and drier than Arizona, but like the extreme heat, the the high altitude, that could be just a bizarre place to to end up playing baseball. But you know, we probably before too long see a team in Nashville or we go back to Montreal or Charlotte. Charlotte, you know, there's the the Virginia Beach proposal that never quite seems to come together that people have been talking about for 30 years that I think would be pretty cool. But uh and to you know to that point, I think the NHL with the the Golden Knights proved the the utility of being the first the first sport in a market. And I don't know if baseball's thinking on those terms. Baseball's already so big and rich and established that uh that they're not thinking about where they can corner the market on on high level professional sports. But I yeah, it'll be interesting to see them take a risk and go somewhere a little bit off the beaten path. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. Anything else you want to, you're wishing for in 2022? Yeah, I was going to ask, like we've been talking about all this off-field stuff, transactions. What do you want to see on the field, Mike? Assuming we get games on the field, I suppose that's one of the things you want to see. Yeah. Well, let's start there. Um, just from a selfish personal standpoint, I want the Phillies to play a normal game, which uh, we're going back to like 2009 since their last normal game. So uh, just just anything like that. Uh, I really enjoyed the NL West race last year, and I would like to see some, whether it's the Dodgers and Giants or the Dodgers and Padres or the Giants and Padres or some combination of of teams why not, not all even three in that of division them? necessarily? Yeah, all three of them. Like having that was just so so cool to just watch those two teams just rocket away from everybody else. And I, I would like to see something like that in one of the six divisions uh next year. I really enjoyed uh that race and we'll miss it if we don't get something like it. 1908 National League, the Cubs won 99 games, the Pirates won 98, the Giants won 98. Give us that in the National League West next year. That's a really good answer. I want to see, I think my first goal when we were uh, coming up with this concept for the pod is a return from some of the game's biggest stars that we didn't see for much of last season. Jacob deGrom, the best pitcher in baseball, had one of the best starts to a season ever and then just didn't pitch again. I want to see him pitch back-to-back with Max Scherzer. I want to see Ronald Acuna come back successfully and not have lost any of the speed that made him such a fun power speed threat. I want Mike Trout to come back from injury because Mike Trout had the worst minor injury in like MLB history last year. I kept expecting him to come back and he just never did. And sure, it was great watching Shohei Otani. That was maybe the most magical individual season I've ever seen. But Trout, like, I I don't want him to go down the Ken Griffey Jr. path because oh. they're, they're about the same age. And Jeez, now Trout like, has... Don't you need to like, <laughs> what go outside turn around three times and spit like yeah that just saying that gave me the I'll, I'll invoke the wrath of the high atop the thing yeah but ken griffey jr was the same age when he started breaking down and i have oh you're no, gonna keep talking about it that's I, great i have no personal memories of griffey in his first run with the mariners because i became 
like a conscious baseball fan in 2000, 2001, at which point Griffey was on the Reds. And I don't want today's six and seven-year-olds to have a world where they don't get to see Mike Trout be awesome for 150 games a year, which he hasn't played 150 games a year since 2016. So give me a, a healthy Mike Trout season and a healthy Shohei Otani season. And Ben's not here, so I can wish it for both of us. You're just knowing dead silent. that you don't. I'm sorry for that. Well, you just like I guess I knew that you don't remember Griffey on the Mariners. I guess what I want for 2022 is for you to be re- or is for me to be replaced by one of those six or seven year olds. So you understand <laughs> how much you aged me by saying you think of, of Griffey as a red. Oh boy, I want to die. That's what I want. In 2022. Sorry, just bring just this such put a bummer. Me in the ground. I meant it to be hopeful. As Mike Trout, I hope you can be healthy. Yeah, it's it's weird. I think like I think on balance with all the the ennui and the sticky stuff and the the labor the labor unrest and all the injuries to star players, I think 2020 was a 2021. No, what year was it? I think 2021 was a really good regular season. Like I I had a lot of fun with baseball last year and uh the fact that that happened with very little from Acuña and Trout and DeGrom, um although DeGrom was making headlines before before he got hurt. So I, I guess mean, he's a, a big part Acuna of it. played half the season and he was basically the MVP favorite. So it's not like yeah. he got nothing from him. It was just, that's true. Real, you know, his team won the world series while he was sidelined. All right. Uh, so before we go on hiatus, I've prepared a game. Oh no, I forgot. It's a college that this baseball was coming. game. Yeah. Well, uh, this is the kind of thing I'm doing just to make sure that I do it. And uh, you know, cause you don't know when you're going to get the chance. So I've prepared a list of six universities, each of which has produced both a high-level baseball player and a president of the United States. And so for each of these six universities, I will give you a president who attended this school and at least one either Hall of Famer or high-level current baseball player who attended this school, and you have to to give me the school. Okay. This is an interesting mix. At least I... Naming schools instead of naming players might allow me to narrow it down a bit more. Yeah, this is a uh, a cousin to one of my favorite bits of trivia, the list of, of five universities that has produced both a president of the United States and a Super Bowl winning quarterback, which now includes the University of Delaware, thanks to Joe Biden and Joe <laughs> Flacco. All right, first school, the baseball players, I'll give you two Hall of Famers and okay. a president. Lou Gehrig, Eddie Collins, Barack Obama. Lou Gehrig, Eddie Collins, Barack Obama. Columbia? That is correct. Columbia University. I had no idea that either Gehrig or Collins went to Columbia. Oh, this is the... Columbia has... It depends on like what the greatest college baseball program in history is. Uh, It depends on how you measure it, but I think there have only been like 11 players to, to play for Columbia and then play in the major leagues and two of them like have an argument for being the best of all time at their position uh which is pretty wild the next one president is herbert hoover and the hall of famer is mike musina herbert hoover so okay herbert hoover i have been to his presidential museum i believe but that doesn't mean i know where he went to college mike musina i don't know what school is it Stanford. This okay. is one of the the schools that also also produced a Super Bowl winning quarterback in uh, in John Elway. 
All right. The next, I'll give you, I'll give you a list of four Hall of Famers for this one. Uh, Ted Simmons, Charlie Geringer, Barry Larkin, George Sisler, and the president, Gerald Ford. Michigan. Yes. University of Michigan. He this played football a, there. Yep. Gerald Ford, actually the only presidential museum I've been to was the Gerald Ford Museum in Grand Rapids. All right, this one, Hall of Famers include Sandy Koufax and Miller Huggins. And William Howard Taft went to this school, not for undergrad, but for law school. Sorry, can you say the baseball players again? Sandy Koufax and Miller Huggins. Miller Huggins. Okay, well, I believe Koufax went to Columbia, didn't he? Koufax went to Columbia at night when he was playing for the Dodgers. He played college baseball elsewhere. And basketball, uh, where I don't think he, here's a hint, where I don't think he overlapped with Oscar Robertson. Oh, then Cincinnati. I was thinking like Ohio State or something, given Taft. Okay. No. Oh, oh, I meant to mention this with Michigan. Bobby, do you know who the baseball field at Michigan is named after? No. Why would I know that? Because it's the Wilpons. Oh, no. I've tried to distance myself from them as much as possible. And yet, on our final show of the year, after Steve Cohen has run the highest payroll so far of 2022, you're going to bring the Wilpons up? Yeah, because Michigan baseball is important. You know who the, the field, not the stadium, but the field at Ohio State's named after? I know that even less. Nick Swisher. Oh, what a legend. That's actually yeah, a State delightful legend. surprise. Yeah. So they might not have won the football game, but they're winning that aspect of the rivalry. All right, so this, this player is not a Hall of Famer, but a very high-profile big leaguer. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt went to the same college as Lyndon Johnson. I know it's a school in Texas. Uh huh. Because I know Goldschmidt was one of the archetypal right, right first basemen who are never supposed to make it and then now are. Yeah. So he was picked in like the fifth round or something. Do I have that right? Yeah. Uh, and it was a school in Texas. University of Texas feels too easy, but I'll guess University of Texas. A very close Texas, Texas State. State. Okay. Texas yeah, State was my other guess. Yeah, you're about an hour down the highway uh, from uh, uh, from getting the right school. When Lyndon Johnson went there, it was the Southwest Texas Teachers College, and recently, um, or not recently, a while ago, changed its name to Texas State in San Marcos, home of one of my favorite bands, the o- the Oh Hellos. All right, last one. The player is Marcus Stroman. The president is Duke University. An alumni. Huh? I know Marcus Stroman went to Duke. Okay. And you're going to say the president is Richard Nixon, who went to Duke Law? That's right. Oh, wow. Yes, I beat you at your own game at the end. Very exciting. What a way to end the game. Oh, boy. So, what did you get? Uh, The end right there felt a little bit like a fencing match. He just, like, deflected and then got you, Balmain. Yeah, it's my my petard. I actually actually knew where Mike Mussina went to college all along. I was just playing you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So... Yeah, that's uh Oh, hellos by the way. I've been listening to My Old Heart recently. It's a very good song. Oh yeah. That's a jam. All right. So, for the last time likely in 2021, I will say the following. That will just about do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB show. Uh, thanks as always to Zach for joining me. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Buck O'Neill, Clayton Kershaw, and Richard Nixon for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Uh, enjoy your off season and we'll see you next time.